Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go, well-being and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Hello and welcome to my Monday night show. I am Hannah Wilson and tonight's Twilight show is joined by Jim Knight and he will be talking about uh, his new book, The Definitive Guide to Instructional Coaching, Seven Factors for Success. So do listen in, feel free to write in any questions you may have. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. I feel like I haven't done a show in so long. Um, I unfortunately had tonsillitis and then I was away on holiday so this feels like forever ago and uh, Jim will be joining us very shortly. Um, Unfortunately we had a slight uh, delay in the time for tonight's show because when we planned this uh, the clocks hadn't changed so um, our time zones because he'll be joining us from America were slightly different and I will admit as we go through the show uh, you will hear me flicking quite a lot through his book as I have highlighted so much in this book I've really enjoyed it and thoroughly recommend um, having your own copy and having a good read it's, it's one of those I was like writing notes down the margins and highlighting things as I go so um, definitely worth a read and that's available via uh, John Cat Publishing um, one of our previous sponsors here so this is how long the show has been on the books for but um, I can't wait to have him on and be chatting about this so if you've got any questions pop them in the chat and we'll go through those in the meantime I'm just going to play on weekly news it's time for a fresh start to language learning Pearson Edexcel's new student-centred French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. 
Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. This programme has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go wellbeing and mental health programme will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and wellbeing tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC reports that one in three primary schools has no male teachers. The study by the Warwick Business School says the proportion of schools without a male classroom teacher has increased in the last 12 months. The report's author, Dr Joshua Fullard, said this lack of male teachers was bad for pupils. Dr Fullard is Assistant Professor of Behavioural Science at Warwick Business School. He went on to say that there is a large body of research that shows students benefit from being educated by a teacher with certain similarities to them. The report also found that schools in special measures are less likely to have a male classroom teacher. In total, the report found that 24.3% of all state schools in England had no male classroom teachers. The report called for teachers' pay to be raised by more than 10% and for a merit-based reduction in tuition fees for university-led teacher training to be introduced. Julie McCulloch, Director of Policy for Askell Union, said more needed to be done to attract men and women alike, and the spokesperson for the DfE said the department wanted the profession to be inclusive. North East Child Poverty Commission website reports that new figures published by the DfE confirm that more than three in ten pupils across the North East are now registered for free school meals. This is an increase from January 2022. It remains the highest proportion of any part of England. The figure of 30.4% is compared with 18.8% of pupils in the South East and 19.4% in the East of England. The England-wide rate is 23.8%. All regions have seen a significant increase in the number and share of children eligible for free school meals over the last seven years. The Guardian reports children's enjoyment of writing has fallen to crisis point following research completed by the National Literacy Trust. The charity says an alarmingly low level of children and young people enjoy writing. The research was conducted across the UK. 34.6% of young people aged 8 to 18 said that they enjoy writing in their free time. Although three in four children starting school said that they enjoyed writing, this dropped to one in four by the age of 16. The Children's and Young People's Writing Report is drawn from over 70,000 responses from children to the charity's annual literacy survey. The number of children who say they enjoy writing in their free time has dropped by 12.2% in the 13 years since the survey began. Young people do report that they write to improve mental health and well-being and to support causes or issues they care about. Full details can be found on the National Literacy Trust website.
finally, Microsoft News reports that Taiwan has made the move to use generative artificial intelligence, or AI, to help students learn English. Teachers in the country often report that students read and write better than they speak English, as shyness and a lack of practice can hinder oral communication. A new chatbot has been funded by Taiwan's Ministry of Education to help pupils get the practice they need. The Cooley bot allows pupils to speak person to AI and build up conversation on preset topics. It also assesses punctuation, accuracy and fluency. Taiwan has set a goal of becoming bilingual in Chinese and English by 2030. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to ask you a question. Do you use presentation software to help you deliver your lessons? 99% of you will be saying yes at this point. Have you ever considered how many presentations the average pupil in your school sees in a day, in a week, or even in their entire school life? Considering a typical secondary education, with a bit of rough maths, over a week with five lessons a day, there's potential to see 25 presentations. That's 100 presentations in just four weeks. I've left out any additional presentations like assemblies and visitors, etc. Working on a 38-week year, that's a whopping 950 presentations a year. That's a lot of presentations. Now, let's throw in some schools have a standardised slide theme and set layouts. Now we have 950 exactly the same lesson beginnings. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but do we really know what experience a pupil gets through a typical week in school? Are they being engaged or are they being presented with the same visual stimulus day in, day out, simply causing them to fly below the radar. If you're like me, you're now thinking, how do I make my presentation stand out? Is there a presentation software out there that's better than all the rest? In my humble opinion, this is like the visualizer versus HD webcam argument. What works for some does not work for others because all subjects are not the same, which is a good thing, don't get me wrong, but please bear in mind that what works for one teacher may not work for another. A search for free presentation software returns no less than 24 apps I recognise. Some are interactive like Mentimeter, others have more dynamic transitions like Prezi. Most also have additional features and add-ons you can purchase. I know what you're saying, come on Steve, which is the best though? Well the answer is simple, but I've run out of time, so I'll have to tell you next week. In the meantime, please consider the number of presentations a typical pupil is subjected to in your school. Does this need to change, or does it work? And how do you know? Do you have a preferred presentation software and what are the features that make it stand out for you? Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. So I've really enjoyed reading this book. I have been reading it over um, the last few weeks and it's um, been really easy to please uh, read. I feel like I, I already know Jim because I've already kind of um, <laughs> listened to his voice almost through this book. So um, it's going to be actually lovely to talk to him in person about it. I had to change the schedule of the uh, podcast. So I think he's accidentally gone onto the wrong one. So give us one moment and hopefully um he'll be joining us but yeah the book is split into seven different sections so the first one is partnership principles then number two is communication skills number three is coaches as leaders and number four is the impact cycle number five 
is data, number six is the instructional playbook, and number seven is system support. But they're really easy to kind of uh, read through. Um, so they're just to kind of start with like a little bit of a scenario and then they kind of go through a lot of theory and different options to try and, it, and it's really broken down and easy, easy to read and I love the fact that at the end of each chapter as well you have a sum up um a reflection questions section going deeper so you've got deep uh, deeper reading and different um links to look to and kind of what next so questions for things for you to try um so it's it's really quite interesting to read um doing that so i've i've enjoyed it and found it quite easy to read and i've highlighted lots of it and i feel like this is one that um tom and nathan are going to like because there's um lots of um kind of good uh quotes in it as well that i've highlighted so i really do enjoy it um those sections are actually kind of in, in bigger chunks as well. So there's the first section is who you are, which has the partnership principles, the communication skills, and the coaches as leaders. And then the what you do, which is the impact cycle, the uh, data, and the instructional playbook, and then where you work, which is the system support. So it's quite nice that it's structured um, in that way. Welcome, welcome to our show. I was just saying to, um, to the listeners that I, I really, really enjoyed reading this. I feel like I already know you because I feel like I've known like your little chats that go on in the book, which is um, really nice. So it's nice to speak to you at last. Um, and um, what what you've written lots of books. So what made you decide to write this one? Well, first off, I saw where you read the book and I I can only assume that would make it a more pleasant experience. So it looked like it was a lovely place to be reading. Um, uh, this is a very late heat wave for Britain. We've been after a bit of sun for a long time. This is the first time we've had a nice weekend. So I couldn't help myself. I think you did the right thing. Um, so a long time ago, uh, like 2003, uh, we, we had an approach to professional development that was originally we used the term learning consultant and I was a researcher at the University of Kansas. We didn't really like the term learning consultant. Then I switched to the name instructional collaborator around 1999. And we used that term and we had quite a bit of funding to do the research. And, um, and then around 2003, I switched the name to instructional coach because I kept hearing people use the term coach. I'd never heard anybody use the term instructional coach. Then I wrote a book or an article which ended up being the first article on instructional coaching around 2004. And then a book, which was the first book on instructional coaching. And so since then, we've done a lot of research and I wanted to create one book that kind of captured everything in sort of a concise way. So if you're wanting to know what's it all about, how do you communicate? How do you figure out what strategies to use? How do you gather data? It could all be in one place. And I'm glad I did because from what I can see online, um, in social media, it seems like in the UK, or in England at least, there's an understanding of instructional coaching that's a lot different than what we've seen as a result of our 25 years of research. So I'm glad the book's out there. I'm really grateful to John Cadd for publishing a British version of it. It's one of those that the, the instructional coaching, I feel like it's been around in the UK for a few years, but certainly the last kind of three, four years, it's really kind of, it's it, it's quite 
common to hear it used now. Um, but I think it is a case of making sure that people are using it properly. And make, and that's what's great about your book. It's, it's quite reflective and it has lots of do's and don'ts and kind of what it is and what it isn't, which is really nice. Yeah, I'd say if what people are doing is working, keep doing it. But there's there's a, a chance it might not be working. If not, then it's worth stepping back and reflecting. And, you know, if you want long-term sustainable change, you probably need to treat teachers like, a, like professionals, and which means you honor their professional judgment. What I'm not really clear on, and maybe you can help me with this, Hannah, is what the term instructional means in the UK. Because in, in most of the world, um, instructional is a sort of generic team for, word for teaching. It's a word like teaching, except it focuses on the practices of the teacher. But it seems like it has a, a, a more specific definition in the UK. Is that fair to say? It's it's kind of to give instruction to, but specifically in, in teaching, and it's quite often used when we're teaching our trainee teachers. Is is you quite often hear about instructional coaching in terms of giving them pedagogy and giving them techniques to implement, and and, and from that kind of way is our kind of instructional coaching is kind of giving them those strategies. Right. So we would say the term is not like that. It's it's we use instruction in the same way. Carol Tomlinson does with respect to differentiated instruction, for example. Um, it's really just about the professional practice of teachers and then having a conversation that honors the professionalism of teachers. It's, it's uh, as appropriate for the most acclaimed teacher in the school as it is for the brand new teachers. And I, um, I, I, I very much highlighted this. I've got lots, lots of bits that right. um, I really, really like. There's like little bits that pop out and there's lots of bits that I read. I'm like, oh, yes, that's me. Oh, I do that. Um, so it's definitely, it definitely spoke to me in a lot. And um, your first one is on partnership principles. Um, right. And it, it talks about kind of um, choice and why choice is important. Right. Well, we would say choice is important because it's uh, the whole host of reasons. I mean, telling people what to do sounds like a quick fix, but it just doesn't work for a whole host of reasons and not giving them choice because um, first off, it assumes a technocratic take on teaching that there's one solution. I just have to tell you it and you'll do it. But the reality of teaching is it's so complex that it requires adaptive solutions, not technical solutions. There isn't a one size fits all approach. There needs to be a sort of mutual adaptation, adjustments and changes in order to hit a goal. The second thing is most of us aren't motivated by other people's goals for us. We're motivated by our own goals. The third thing is, as Edgar Schein said in helping, if people perceive us as putting ourselves one up and putting them one down, they're not likely to embrace it. And there's a whole host of other reasons, not the least of which is just because we tell somebody to do something doesn't mean they'll do it. Um, the reality is, whether you accept it or not or like it or not, teachers have an enormous amount of choice because we're all skilled at nodding our head yes and doing nothing. And so acknowledging choice up front, the reality is just because I say it doesn't mean it's going to happen, leads to a much richer conversation about what really does happen in the classroom. Because... If the nature of the conversation is, I'm going to tell you what to do, and you nod yes, chances you'll do it aren't that great. And so I think having a back and forth conversation between professionals is important. The other thing is, because choice is central to what a professional does, if we want the schools we want, I think we have to treat teachers like professionals, because we don't want uh, 
unskilled laborers teaching our, our kids. This program has been brought to you by The Happy Confident Company. Our clinically approved, ready-to-go well-being and mental health program will help your pupils thrive. In only 10 minutes a day, you'll be able to deliver social and emotional learning and well-being tools throughout your school. To find out more, visit us at www.happyconfident.com. And I think it's that, that um, they say, isn't it, that you're a, a topic of the people that you hang out with and the people that you talk to. And I, I think that's what made me such a, a good teacher is that I surround myself with lots of other teachers that I I regularly talk to. Like, I quite enjoy teacher chat, clearly, doing <laughs> this. Right. And my mum's a teacher and my sister's a teacher. And I really enjoy that kind of, that chat of, oh, and it's, it's like you said, no, no class is the same. If you can teach the same lesson multiple times, but it's never going to be the same thing because it's different children each time and there's the surroundings and the solutions and the day is different. So it's having being able to have that adaptive kind of solutions to the way you teach is that's what make teachers good teachers, I think, is, is how you can cope with that. Yeah, I think there are some one size fits all things that are really simple, like um as my friend Christian Van Neuerberg says, if a car pulls up to you and says, can you tell me how to get to City Hall? They don't want you to say to them, you know, other times you've tried to find City Hall what's worked for you. They just want directions. And there are things like that, like how do I use this software or how do I fill in this form or how do I, you know, there are lots of things that are technical. What, when complexity scientists talk about complexity, they usually use raising a child as complex work. Well, if raising one child is complex, how complex is it to try to raise a whole classroom or at least teach a whole classroom of students? So, so co complexity really demands adaptive responses. That is, you make adjustments that fit the particular needs of kids and the unique strengths of the teacher and so forth. And in terms of um, how you kind of think to do that so um i suppose it's all about having that kind of that dialogue isn't it and making sure that you're kind of both on that same page like that you can have those conversations quite openly you've got to have like an open relationship it can't be that talking down to them otherwise it's not gonna um build up at all yeah i mean my belief would be when you you know there, there's a cartoon i, I saw a couple of days ago and it was this uh sort of corporate person sitting behind, behind a desk and his employee came in to talk to him. And he said, uh, come in, Franklin, I wanna, I'm excited to, to communicate down to you. We don't really wanna have a one up, one down kind of relationship when we're professionals. We wanna be acknowledged and recognized as professionals. And so, but the bottom line is, if I thought telling people what to do was the quickest way to improve the quality of instruction, then that's what I would propose. But the reality is, like, I'll give you an example. There's a thing in the United States called the CHAMPS, which is a great, uh, I think, a model for creating a positive learning community for students. And the idea is you develop expectations for every activity. And lots of teachers in some schools are told to use CHAMPS. So what they do is they post their expectations in the room. They tell the kids, these are the expectations. They never refer to them again. But if you have an adaptive conversation where, or a dialogue where the teacher has set a goal, I want a certain level of engagement on the part of the kids, or I want certain kinds of responses from the kids, 
then you have to keep going until you hit the goal. And so champs does, doesn't become something you just slap on the wall to please your principal. It becomes a tool, a power tool you use to hit a, a powerful goal for your students. And, and kind of, cause we've, we're finding at the moment since COVID that students are kind of harder to kind of get on side. They're a little bit tougher to teach than they used to be. They're not quite as resilient. Um, have you found the same thing that it does take a little bit longer to get those expectations kind of met? Um, well, there's a, all kinds of problems. I don't know if problems is the right word, but there's all there are all kinds of new challenges as a result of COVID. I mean, people have dealt with trauma. People are ha, have. Um, I mean, I don't think we fully understand the consequences of what we just went through. So it it's affecting teachers and it's affecting students, but I think every, every classroom is different, every school is different, every community is different. So I don't know that there's a generalizable thing other than to say it's not easy. It's been, a, it's been a challenging time. This year, it seems, wasn't quite as tough as the year before, but it's still, it's still been a tough year for sure. We're losing Hopefully, a lot of teachers. Hopefully, it'll just keep, keep getting a little bit better. Right. Um, but it's, it's, I was, the bit that I found quite shocking, actually, at the start of your book that I was like, oh, I m must mention it, was that about the research that you did um, or that, that you discussed about how teachers say that they are the least likely of all occupations to say that their opinion seems to count. I was like, actually, I, I feel that's quite true for us, especially with over in England, we've been having lots of strikes about teaching pay, but the public perception of teachers is very much, oh, you get loads of holidays and you don't work long hours. And, and it's quite interesting that, that that even though we're in a kind of a, a job where we get to voice our opinions to the students and we're quite in quite an influential role in terms of the students that actually as educators, we don't feel kind of very heard yeah, with Shane Lopez, he did that uh, work for uh, Gallup, and um, he the interesting thing was he said teachers started out more engaged than any other profession, but it dropped off radically. And I actually met Shane. Um, he used to live in Lawrence after he did the research, and you know his his uh, take I think is that because people teachers don't have a voice. That's why their that's why their engagement drops off so radically. Because he would say voice is a critical part. Feeling like feeling like your opinion matters. I mean, Gallup did a survey of over a million people. I think eight, interviewed eighty thousand people. They came up with this list of twelve things that make for a successful, productive, good employee. And one of them was at work. I feel like my opinion matters. And what Lopez found was that um, teachers were the least likely to say that was true of them. And I think that's that's what kind of why we need a bit more kind of coaching and having those conversations in teaching, because right. I feel that if, if we can have, especially with the hierarchy within a school, that the teachers need to feel that their concerns are being met. Otherwise that's going to like stop with your teacher retention and, and they're going to want to go and move somewhere else that aren't going to listen. So it's something that schools need to kind of address. I think. Yeah, I, I think, um, I, I really think that we have to listen to the first thing is seeing the teacher as a professional, as opposed to someone who follows a script. It's acknowledging the reality that anybody can nod their head. Yes. And just do the bid, the, the minimum. We might get compliance, but we don't get commitment without some element of choice. 
And, uh, but learning is a fun thing. I mean, learning is a, um, you know, I'd say it's one of the four or five most important things in a fulfilling life. And when you have, when you're together with a person in a learning conversation where the two of you are sharing ideas and you're excited about what's happening and there's mutual respect and trust and both voices are heard in the conversation, um, then I think that's a really good thing. And I think that's what will keep teachers is in the profession and motivated is for them to feel like, oh, my voice does matter. And I do, I, I do have a say and, and my brain is a part of this conversation. It's not just being dumped on. That that's kind of my my favorite time of the year because here we have um, trainee teachers. They kind of swap between schools throughout the year, so you only get them for about half the year. But I really enjoy having those conversations with my trainees of getting them to reflect, but also explaining them to why the, the, all the pedagogy and the theory behind how a lesson's put together and why it's done in a in a certain way and and the impact it's meant to have it's not it's not by chance that it's put together like that there's a lot of kind of detail that goes into a lesson behind it it's it's not just we we rock up and we kind of chat to them there's lots of kind of a lot of theory from lots of different educators that have kind of paved the way for education to keep evolving and and help students learn the best that they can yeah we would say the focus needs to be on the kids and not on the strategy that you start with the kids and so as you coach maybe through the use of video maybe by interviewing kids maybe by looking at student work maybe by giving the teacher an opportunity to really look deeply at each student what i call a close watch maybe any number of different ways, but the teacher gets a clear picture of reality. And then you ask questions to help them identify a goal. Essentially, you know, where are you now? Where do you want to get to? And then once you've figured out what the goal is the teacher wants to go after, it's usually going to be either an achievement goal or an engagement goal. And that can get pretty granular in terms of the way it is. Once you've got a goal, an emotionally compelling goal the teacher really wants to hit, then it's time to say, okay, now what strategies can we look at to try to help you hit this goal? When you do it the other way around, when you focus on the strategy, it asks teachers to do something that seems awkward and uncomfortable, and they're less motivated to do it because of the strategy. They're more motivated to do it when they're trying to hit a goal, a student-focused goal. And so for us, the student-focused goal is a really, really critical part of the whole business. We start with kids, then we identify the strategy. We don't start with the strategy and then try to fit it into the classroom. I think I think that's it. I had a I had a student um, last year that was like, "Oh, this um, my my sessions are an assessment. Um, I need to do some assessment because I need to tick off that criteria." And I was like, "But why are you doing the assessment to tick off the criteria?" And I was like, "But how does it benefit the students?" So if you're going to do the assessment, I want to know how it's benefiting the students. And then we're not doing it to tick a box, we're doing it because it, mm. it needs to benefit them in some way. And it completely flipped her way of thinking and she stopped thinking of her course as kind of ticking the milestones and started thinking about how do I get that kind of topic to benefit the students. And it was a real switch in the way she taught and it was really interesting. That sounds great. Um, and I, I, I think this is, uh, an interesting one that you said that the coaching it seems is less likely to happen without a learning partner and I think it is you you need other educators don't you you can't just do it on your own and I think some people struggle to say oh I need I need help with my teaching or I'm really struggling with this class that we're quite perfectionists as teachers we want to seem that we know what we're doing and that we're good at it but 
it is it is a difficult profession and, it, and it's okay to talk and, and ask for help no matter what stage you are at your career because quite often it tends to be sometimes older teachers that have been doing it a long time are like I know everything I don't need to learn anything new I know what I'm doing but actually I think if we can kind of open teaching up to constantly evolving it's going to benefit teaching as a general thing and also help teachers stay in the profession as well. Yeah, I think teachers are real um, learners. <clears throat> I mean, if, if you're watching a teacher who teaches the same lesson multiple times in the day, it's going to look different the third or fourth time they do it than it did the first time because they're going to learn from the experience. In my experience, teachers are, are reading all the time. They're looking for different things. Not everybody's the same, but they're, they, first off, they understand the power of learning and they live it out. But professional development that puts the teachers in a one-down position and tells them what they should do and doesn't involve their brain, that's not learning. That's something else, something dehumanizing. And, um, and so the professional learning should tap into that desire everybody has to want to be a learner and to grow and develop. And then you've got, then you've got something exciting. You know? and I don't know if it's really them asking for help or it's just a more a recognition that we're not perfect. There's always room for growth and how fun and exciting it is to try to reach more kids when, we're, when our voices are heard and when we're able to use our brains and we're involved in the learning and when we develop hope and tools that help us achieve our goals. It's like, I guess, um, like performance management here is quite often seen as like right. a negative thing, like, oh, I have to hit those goals, otherwise I'm not going to progress. But actually, I think it should be flipped on its head and seen as like, oh, this is my opportunity to focus on something that I'm really interested in within education. And it should be kind of more of an exciting opportunity as opposed to being like something that you're measured by. Yeah, I, I think, I don't know if performance management as well as, as you, of course, but um, I think what I would say is we can't lose sight of how complex the job of teaching is. And that the only appropriate response to that complexity is humility. To say yeah. to the person, you know, I've got some ideas, but I can't promise you they work. What do you think about this? Let's work it out together. Because the idea that I can just show up with a one-size-fits-all solution to something as complex as a classroom, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a realistic situation given, given what happens in a classroom. But if I show up and we work things out together and... Um, and that doesn't mean I silence myself. I just don't try to control you. You know, I should share my thinking and share it. We would, we're all about using checklists to be really precise with our explanations, but we also say, but you may want to modify this to make it fit for you in your class with your students. And so we, we, we don't just give it to the teacher. We work it out together. It's having that, we, we, we all say aut autonomy, having that autonomy to, to have still have the structure to fit within the school so there's that consistency but you have autonomy to kind of twist it and adapt it and make it work for your students and you know your students better than anybody else right but i would say uh, uh, consistency and autonomy are not um in opposition in fact i don't think you can have consistency without autonomy because without some element of choice and people are just complying, that's not consistency. They're just going to do the bare minimum so they don't get fired. You really want a deep level of commitment, what people might call collective efficacy. You really need people who are committed, and they're not going to be committed unless they choose. They'll do the bare yeah. minimum, but the deep level of commitment where they roll up their sleeves and they're all in, that involves choice to some extent. Now, not everything's a choice. You can't say, 
you know, I teach better after a couple glasses of wine. I think I'll, I'll put a little cooler in my classroom. That's probably not going <laughs> to work. You know, you can't, yeah. you can't show up at 11 o'clock. If the district commits to some kind of initiative, you can't say, I'm out, I'm not doing it. You know, there's, there's a lot you have to do when you work in an organization. But, but in terms of some of the specifics that happen in your classroom as a professional, and just like any other professional, you need to be able to use your professional judgment. And I think that's um, leads quite on to, I think it was your communication skills. There was one of the scenarios where you talked about how she went in, there was uh, one of the people you spoke about went into the school and people were quite keen to have her help, but then it didn't kind of, they kind of didn't necessarily implement everything afterwards. And I think it is, it is those kind of how you have those conversations in order to have things have a great effect. Right. Right. I think that's true. Um, although I must admit, this is probably my best line from the book, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, <wait>. is, <laughs> I'm, I'm, the great questions bit is that the best questions are like fertilizers for the garden of learning. Uh, I was like, oh, I do, I do enjoy that one. Um, that one got double highlighted. Because right. um, <laughs> it, it is, it, it's about having the, and it is, it's not only how we question the kids to get further answers out of them, but it's how we, question ourselves on how our lessons went but also how we question those in our department for how they're teaching and how we question our trainees and in getting them to be reflective um it's 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 really interesting that the level of kind of how to go with questioning yeah well i i think uh, questioning is a way you communicate your respect for the other person i mean if you say something like, don't you think small group activities would increase engagement? You're not really asking a question. You're just giving advice with a question mark at the end of it. And so you want to ask questions that really, that really do honor the intelligence of the other person and let them know. And you ask them from a place of curiosity. And I think when it comes to something, as I've said a few times here, as complex as a classroom, that, that being curious is the the appropriate response, being open to hearing what the person has to say and involving them in the conversation. And, you know, the, the reality is we think our advice is way more valuable than it is, and we think people want it way more than they do. And, um, and so it, I think starting asking more and telling less is there's a book by that title. That's a really great, strong stance. I like, I like that because because I found like um, when you were saying uh, there's a bit in it where you were saying about how don't don't cut in and things like that. And I'm certainly learning that becoming a, a host on here and asking questions. But I, I found myself doing that with my trainees to try and reassure them. But I realized actually I probably after reading your book, maybe I shouldn't jump in because quite often they'll say, oh, I found this. And I'm like, oh, I do that, too. Or or that's because of this. And, and actually, I need to kind of let them speak a little bit more before I kind of um offer advice and kind of more probe them to make sure they're understanding it before i offer the outcome at, at, at the start well when it comes to coaching we would say it starts with a goal <clears throat> you need some kind of goal to drive the whole process because the goal is the way in which you determine whether or not what you're doing works and so the goal could be an engagement goal an engagement can break down to behavioral engagement cognitive engagement emotional engagement do the kids feel hope? Do they feel safe in school? Are they getting out of the activity what they're supposed to get out of it? it? Would be cognitive engagement, or it could be achievement. And achievement is probably 
knowledge, skills, or big ideas. And big ideas is like the top of Bloom's taxonomy. And then with achievement, you're looking at, have they acquired it? Can they make connections between their big ideas? Can they transfer their knowledge? And so all of that information, I mean, a coach needs to understand what that is. And then we would say they have to have a playbook of strategies that, that hit that, that help people hit those goals, whether they're engagement or, so if a teacher is struggling with behavioral engagement, kids are just off task, disruptive, it's not working. It's gonna to be tough if the coach says, I got nothing. It's gonna be way more helpful if the coach can say, here are a bunch of, here's a menu of options, which one of these gives you the most confidence? And, um, and let the person choose what they're gonna do. And then if the person says, well, I really wanna work on this and we think that's a bad idea, we say, is it all right with you if I share what I'm thinking about this? So we don't silence ourselves, but we recognize the person's gonna do what they choose to do, so we let them choose, because that's just the reality of the situation. So in, we probably wouldn't use the term trainee, but in, in the, that kind of situation, if the person comes to me and what they want is an explanation, or they're totally open and excited about learning something, and I can describe it simply and clearly in a technical way, of course you would do that. But if the person, um, didn't ask for it, and, and the challenge they're facing is much bigger than a one-size-fits-all technical solution, that's where the coaching makes more sense. So, so a, a, a teacher whose um, kids are just not responding to classroom discussion, um, probably there isn't a one-size-fits-all solution to that. Probably you have to try things. Say, I, I want, she might say, I want a certain number, a percentage of kids responding, and I want certain levels of responses. Those are my, that's my goal. Let's see what it takes. So they may change their questioning and realize, well, we need to use thinking prompts to generate more conversation or this kind of question works or maybe we'll do think, pair, share before it or my kids who are multilinguistic aren't speaking up. They keep making adjustments until they make it work. That's, that's how we would do it. It's, it's that kind of cycle, isn't it, of keeping right. um, and looking. And I just think it is that I, I quite like turning it on my students if they ask me a question of how something's gone I'll, I'll like right but what have you got in your kind of arsenal that can help you build up this question or if I, I then ask the neighbor like something that will help link it to it is kind of using it to help them get there themselves I suppose it's a little bit scaffolding isn't it with kind of helping them build that confidence so that they can repeat it in the future yeah we would say that the concept of resistance shouldn't exist in coaching because resistance uh, assumes the person's not doing what we want them to do. They're resisting us. And we think, and this is similar to the whole body of research on what's called motivational interviewing. We think the first thing is to help the teacher identify an emotionally compelling goal they want to hit. And then once we've got the goal, then we, and we do what we can to help them hit the goal. And so the whole, we distinguish between what I call push coaching and pull coaching. And I'm not the first one to use that, that terminology. Others have used it too. But push coaching is I'm trying to get you to do something I've decided you should do. And pull coaching is you've identified a goal and the whole process is pulled forward by that goal you really wanna hit. And so that's why we focus on a change in students first. That becomes the emotionally compelling goal and then a, a coach should have a playbook of high impact teaching strategies they can share to help the teacher hit that goal. Now, 
They may not have what the teacher needs. They might have to do research and find other things, but often there's a, there's a core set of say 15 or 20 strategies you can say, these things help the person hit the goal. And I think it links to another highlighted area. Um, I've got to say that's a great question. You should illuminate a conversation the way a light bulb opens up a dark room. And I think it's, it's that you're kind of getting them to understand the tools that they've got to kind of um, get to where they want to, to be, to get to that outcome, to feel success. Did I say that? <laughs> you did. Oh, I like that. That's good. <laughs> I probably quoted somebody else. That sounds too good to be coming. No, no, no. That one, that one is all you. That one is all okay. you. It's in the summary section because right, so I, I really, I like that. I, I like the fact that I could read it because I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm dyslexic, so I'm quite a slow reader. Mm. Um, why I'm doing my second masters, I have to read a lot, so I'm like, oh, crikey. But um, it's, it's, it's that kind of. It's quite funny because this all talks about uncluttering your mind so that you can focus. Mm. Um, but then I'm like, I quite like the fact that I can read it all, and then I'm like, ah, oh, I can just remind myself with the summary. And then the reflection questions are really nice as well. And the fact that you kind of makes you think about your own practice and kind of what your experiences is and kind of can think about those different areas. And then I'm also one of those that I very much love the fact that you've gone going deeper so I can then go find other articles and other books and things. And some of them I have read as well. So I'm like, oh, yes, I know. I know that bit. And then you're you're what next? Is there a reason that you've added that? Because that's onto each one. Does that? Did that just something natural that came about or was that something that you decided from the start that you were going to have in each section? The components at the end? Yeah. Well, I've, uh, it's evolved a little bit, but it is pretty much, um, it's been there since the first book, like uh, the going deeper section. Part of that is just to acknowledge that anything I say is the product of a whole body of other people's thinking. And so some of the key people would be mentioned, their books would be mentioned in the going deeper section. So people can read more if they want to. And then the learning map concept, the concept map kind of at the start of each chapter, people have, uh, um, uh, people have given me a lot of feedback that they found those maps at the beginning kind of helpful to give them a picture. And we, that's a teaching practice we use is the use of learning maps. Yeah. And uh, so it all, I guess it kind of evolved, but let me see what's in the, I'm going to go look and see what's in the back of the first the instructional coaching book. I think it's, I think it's pretty, pretty similar. I think, I think it's, you know, I think um, there's a book that's a collection of um, articles that Kurt Vonnegut's written about writing. And and the book is called pity the reader. (laughs) And it's like write in a way that they can understand. And so I do try to do that, but I also think you have to be careful not to insult the reader, you know, yeah, so the, the first one says just the uh, going deeper and to sum up. That was, it had the maps at the beginning of it. I'm looking at the first instructional coaching book. So it had the maps, the going deeper, and the summary at the end of it. So it's, it's evolved over time. Yeah, because I just think it's, it's very popular in the UK at the moment to kind of have a book and have staff read it and but and then reflect on it so it's quite nice in that respect that if if a school wanted to use your book and focus on that kind of area of coaching that they could use those reflective questions within their department time um Mm -hmm. to discuss it which is is something that I like I I think 
that that's something I've always liked where schools do that in terms of their CPD, that everyone's right. reading the same thing. And then they've, they've almost got those, they're, they're coaching questions that you could that start those chats. So you don't have those nervous tentative bits where nobody really wants to say their <laughs> opinion. You've, you've got those areas where you can instantly kind of start those conversations, which is really nice. Right. Would it be helpful if I sort of described what it would look like to have a, an instructional coach work with a teacher? Yeah, that would be great. So let's say um, a coach, uh, the teacher comes to the coach and says, I, I, I need some coaching, I need some help. I'll, I'll get, pick a real example. It's a teacher who was her third year teaching and she was in a school district in Washington and she was part of a research study we did. And she went to the coach and said, look, I'm struggling with writing. And the, the, the teacher was um, from a family of teachers. Her grandmother was a teacher. Her mother taught kindergarten for 30 years. Her sister was a teacher. It was no surprise she chose teaching over law, but she couldn't teach writing. And she said, when I looked at my students and I saw them struggling, I knew how they felt because that's how I felt teaching writing. And she said, um, when, we, when they would ask me questions I didn't know the answer to, I would just move on to the next topic and ignore them. And so... So she went to the coach, the coach needed help, and, or the, she needed help with the coach, and the coach video recorded the teacher's class, and then they had a conversation. So the, the teacher looked at the video. She said the video was really helpful because it helped her see what the class felt like through the kid's eyes. But they set a goal not really based on the video, they set an achievement goal, and together they co-constructed a rubric, a single point rubric, or a checklist, um, that said, this is what a good paragraph will look like. And then the coach and teacher worked together and they decided that the teacher would use a learning map to help the kids understand the content so they could see it visually in front of them and use the rubric to self-assess, to, to get feedback on their writing. So then the coach uh, went in the classroom, modeled how to use the rubric, modeled how to use the learning map. And, um, they used to teach, get together all the time and look at the progress of the students. And at one point, the coach said, um, or the teacher said, I just can't keep up with the grading. This rubric is great, but it's too much. It's taking me weeks and weeks to do the grading. So they switched to um, having the teacher teach the kids how to give each other feedback. And eventually they hit the goal. And when they hit the goal, the teacher said, you know, I'm not letting my students down. I can see that they all hit the goal. And the teacher actually invited the coach into the classroom and they celebrated together. And, um, and they, the teacher said, now I have some ideas to move forward. And they could both see the kids who weren't going to succeed now succeeded. That's how the whole thing works. So we have a three parts, identify. Identify involves getting a clear picture of reality, identifying a goal, and identify a strategy. So that Teacher looked at video, they talked about how kids were performing, they set a goal, that was the rubric. The strategy was the rubric and the learning map. Then in the learning stage of it, the second part of the process, what the coach does is helps the teacher implement, sometimes by describing things with a checklist and modifying it to teach to fit the teacher's needs. And then sometimes modeling. In this case, the coach co-taught, because she said, I wanted to be in the classroom when the, when the teacher was struggling and didn't know how to answer the questions. So she co-taught for a while to support the teacher. And then they tried it out and they had some roadblocks along the way. The most significant one being um, 
the time factor, but there are other things like, should we start with the main idea and work to the details, or we should start with the details and work to the main idea and other kinds of issues until they finally hit the goal. And that teacher told me if she hadn't worked with the coach, she would have quit. She would have left the job. And I saw her principal years later, like three or four years after the fact, and the principal said to me, uh, she'd become a real leader in the district. And that, that's how it works. Identify a clear picture of reality, a goal, a strategy, learn the strategy, implement it. It usually doesn't work the way you implement it. So you have to modify it and adjust it and adapt it until the goal eventually gets hit, or at least you get as close to the goal as you can get. That's the process. And then you can do another cycle if you want to focus on something else and keep, keep the learning going. I think that's, that's, the thing isn't it you just keep adapting and I, and I love team teaching especially with mm-hmm. we, uh, my student teachers and it I think it's a great way to build their confidence especially if they're like a little bit nervous that actually if they see you doing it with them it kind of builds that but I wanted to bring you back to videoing because I found that really interesting so mm-hmm. I so my role I haven't really explained myself so I'm I, I'm an art teacher but I'm head of an art department but I'm also national subject lead so we have 46 schools across the trust and I help all the art departments across the the trust so uh, we have a lot of online learning and stuff so I do video those because we have to send them out so I do sometimes I'm get brave and, and watch those and I do record a lot of my demonstrations to be able to replay for the students but when you're recording do you record just the teacher or do you record all the students as well like from the back so you're getting the whole reaction it depends on what the teacher wants and it depends on what the teacher's interested in <clears throat> so if the teacher um says what do you want to do ordinarily what i would do is i would record the teacher when the teacher is talking and i would record the students i mean to keep the, the camera going but probably my iphone and i record the students when they're doing their thing but the teacher might be really interested in how kids are responding to questions. In that case, I might want to sit up front and just record the kids during questioning. But it, I, uh, it's, it's ultimately what the teacher wants to do is how we do it. I imagine it's one of those that once you get over the initial kind of fear of it, it becomes easier. Because I've never, I would think when I read it, I was like, actually, I'd really love to film my students and how they're reacting when I'm talking right. and just see that rather than looking at me um, as the kind of subject of the video. Right. Well, um, yeah, the first time you look at it and nobody ever looks at their video and goes, man, I'm younger and thinner than I thought. I mean, people, <laughs> people look at it and they go, I'm never going to wear those purple pants again. I mean, they, that's their first reaction is they're going to change something or I need to go on a diet or I'm getting old or whatever it might be. But after you've watched it, and also, I wouldn't force video on people. I think uh, it's pretty emotionally complex. And if you force people, it's just going to engender resistance. Um, and there are a lot of other ways of getting a clear picture of reality. But if the teacher's, you know, willing to take the risk, after you watch it once, then you can start to see more. And one of the cool things about videos, you can go back and you look at stuff over and over. And sometimes, let's say you're trying to improve the first five minutes of your class. You could just record that every day. Just record the first first five minutes and look at it. And then the next day, try something different. You know, it doesn't have to be a, 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 big, a big thing. Or let's say you have a group of teachers who are learning how to use, I don't know, the Frere model to teach concepts. And each one tries it out and they video record themselves and they get together and talk about how it worked and they, they use video. So video can accomplish. And, and the big thing is, 
we, for a number of reasons, we don't have a clear picture of what it looks like. Most of us, when we do what we do, part of it is perceptual errors. So things like confirmation bias and habituation, we literally don't see what other people see. But the other thing is yeah. we have, we have uh, defense mechanisms, which are necessary to move through the world. But, you know, defense mechanisms minimize the problem. They blame other people. They come up with other reasons. There's all kinds of reasons why it's not me that's the problem. But video cuts through the defense mechanisms and video cuts through the perception errors. It shows you things more or less are they, as they are. And often that's a catalyst for change. Because I've been learning about, I don't know, correct me if I'm saying it wrong, the, the Jahari window is all about kind of looking at your blind spots and seeing the right. things that you're not quite thinking about yourself. And I found that quite eye-opening. Like, I, I, I back myself in certain areas of teaching, but there's, right. there's little bits that actually I need to not ignore because, or, or just think about actually how I'm delivering them because right. it's not necessarily how I think it is in my head. Um, so I do think, like, being reflective in, in, in that way is really kind of useful. So yeah, we would, we would show the teacher the video and then we would, when we sit down to talk about it and we found it's better to watch it separately. And again, this is only oh, one okay. way, one way of doing it. We found when you watch it together, the conversation is just too stilted and awkward. So you watch it, I'll watch it. And then we get together and then I'll say, I'm going to have the video there, but we, I've never gone back to look at the video. We just have a conversation about what the person saw. Yeah. And then I say, okay, so on a scale of one to 10, how close was that to a 10? And they'll say, well, maybe five. And then I'll say, okay, why'd you pick five? And, uh, and if they have a whole bunch of negatives, I'll say, well, you didn't pick a one. A lot of things are going well. What did you see that was going well? And then I say, okay, well, what would it take to move closer to a 10? And then they say, well, I could do this or that. And I say, well, um, would you want that to be your goal? And then yeah, well, if that's your goal, you know, you probably thought a lot about this. What are you thinking you might do to hit the goal? And we keep going until they've got a goal and how they're going to measure it and, and a strategy they're going to use to hit it. But it's, it's all driven by the professional. It's not driven by some observer who's watched one hour of the class and is going to give them the, the God's I, truth. I, thought, I like happen. that, that you watch it separately and then come together and then you don't have to watch, you don't have the awkwardness of watching it together, right. Um, right. which is good. But I did that. You you did. Um, I've heard of smart goals, but you in your book refer to peers' goals. Goals right. are powerful, easy, emotional, compelling, researchable, and student focused. I, re I I really like that. That that appealed to me way more than a, a smart goal. Well, there's some problems with the smart goal. Um, one of them is uh, that um, timely. How do you? Yeah. I mean. Uh, how do you set a timely goal for other people? You know, I can set a goal, a timely goal for me to do the laundry or something or clean out my closet or clean my desk or finish a project. If I'm the only variable, I can set a timely goal. But I can't set a timely goal for my cable guy to come and fix my cable TV. He's going to come when he's going to come. In a classroom full of students, it's unrealistic, I think, to think that you can say when you're going to hit your goal because there's just so many variables. Now, timely can mean um, we're going to break down when things are going to happen. I don't think that's a bad idea. And then there's some other things that I think are critical, like is the goal emotionally compelling? Is the goal a powerful goal, one that's going to have an unmistakably positive impact on kids, a lasting impact? Kids will be different next year because of this goal. The trouble with SMART is sometimes what you have happen is 
people are just checking, checking off the boxes. Okay, I've been specific and this is, yeah, it's realistic and act, you know, they just check, 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 as opposed to saying, is this a goal I really care about, emotionally compelling? And then I think it's important to ask, is this an, as easy as we can go? Can we find a simpler way, a more direct path to the goal than this way? You know, a more efficient way. So that's the, the peers process. And then the reachable part, the R in peers, is about, um, it is kind of the smart stuff of how we know we've hit the goal. What's our finish line? And do we have a strategy or can we identify a strategy? And so we put that all together. Is it powerful, easy, emotionally compelling, reachable? And then the student focus is key too. A teacher focused goal is probably one that won't be sustained. That is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to ask a different kind of question. I'm gonna set up this kind of activity. I'm gonna use this technology. But a student focused goal set the student focus goal, then you figure out the strategy, then you're off to the races. Yeah, it has to be about them. And I think it's, it's if, especially, and it has to be reachable. You have to be able to kind of feel like you're making progress. Otherwise you're going to get disheartened. It's, it's that kind of um, good thing. Right. But The flip side um, is also true. When you are making progress, it feels, Teresa Mobley at Harvard, I think she's at Harvard, talked about the progress principle. As you see yourself developing progress, your motivation goes up and you're, you're building your own agency, which is critical to hope. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. Um, and I think that's that's where it comes to like because you you go on to um, data next and kind of how you measure those goals and I think I think I'm I love data I love knowing and seeing that my students are succeeding but I just think there's so many different ways of data in education and also sometimes it it can look impressive but it doesn't necessarily tell us much so it's kind of that fine line of deciding what data you should be using and what types I think is is quite interesting and at what point you almost decide I almost feel like I need to decide now what focuses I'm going to do for next year so I know when I'm going to kind of look at those things and how it's going to look so and how am I going to know it's it's measured at the right times yeah uh too often from our perspective um the data is gathered too infrequently. So yeah. like if you only gather it once every two months, it's not that helpful. I always say it's like a GPS that only tells you if you've arrived. <laughs> you, you need to know, are we on track or off track? Do we need to make adjustments? Particularly because the first times you try strategies out, they need to be adjusted to work. And so you need to know if they're working or not working. So we would say your data needs to be gathered weekly and it needs to, it needs to um, surface what's happening with every student. It can't be a group score. You want to know which ones are succeeding and aren't succeeding. And so well, I've got, I'm working on a book now called Data Rules, but in the definitive guide, there's a fair bit there about data where you look at, you look at individual students and 
you might be looking at student well-being. You might be looking at how well kids are experiencing the learning. You might well look at um, the knowledge skills or big ideas students are acquiring or they're transferring in their life. And there's, there's tools, whether it's selected response or rubrics or whatever it might be, to measure the achievement. And then there's different ways of measuring the engagement. And I think engagement is quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because I think there's that deception that students can look busy, but actually they're not doing much. Um, and it's it's how you measure whether they're actually kind of engaged and actually understanding and retaining the information versus just being good and looking like they're doing something, I think is, is quite a big thing at the moment for us anyway over here. Well, I think the, the do they look like they're learning? Um, is helpful if they're clearly not looking like they're learning. So if your kids are like 50% off task, they're not doing the task, then setting a goal around on task behavior would work. But if they're looking like they're on task, but they're not really getting out of it, what you want to get out of it, then there's a whole host of ways. We call a thing called experience sampling where kids report back on their level of engagement. The trouble is the more valid the data is sometimes, the less reliable it is because it relies on student self-reporting it could be exit tickets every week it could be interviews there's a lot of things you could do to gather data on the students but um to get really reliable data it's usually less valid so you have to trade off given this particular group of students do i want to go for time on task which is reliable but not i don't know i can't read them mind they might be thinking wouldn't it yeah. be cool you know whatever they're thinking we don't know but if you ask them to tell you what they're thinking, they, they, they may not give you an accurate picture. So you, you, all data is imperfect. You just have to pick the data that's the least imperfect <laughs> and the most helpful. And sometimes in the midst of the cycle, you're going to make some changes to how you gather data. I find that when it comes to individual lessons, students tell you what you, they think they should right. say. But if you discuss like a subject as a whole, they'll be completely and utterly honest about everything so you, you can either get one or the other with the students that they kind of right. are completely open and just tell you everything or it's it's kind of they just say what you think you need to hear to get kind of i, I need to get on with my day miss <laughs> right. but, uh, it's i i think i think that i'd love I'm, I'm very intrigued about your new book about data i'll have to get you back on to chat <laughs> about that one now <laughs> uh, but yeah because i just think it's, especially since things have changed with COVID, I think the way students are very better adapted to kind of making it look or, or do the more, I guess, I guess I'm reflecting on my year nine group, that they're, they're kind of the ones before they choose their GCSEs, that they're doing subjects that they know they're not going to continue. So they're kind of doing the minimum, but it's how you engage them and, and how you can kind of boost that is quite... Um, is kind of where I'm reflecting at the moment. Um, right. But I know when I hit my GCSEs, they want to be there. So the engagement is much higher and the outcomes are much higher. So it's, it's, that it's difficult, isn't it, when the students don't necessarily want to be there, how you can kind of balance it with the ones that do. Yeah, I would say the thing is um, to ask yourself, what would it look like if the kids were doing what I want them to do? And then how could I measure that? So if we take your, your ninth uh, level nine group, maybe the answers they're giving to questions are pretty clearly teacher pleasing answers. 
They're just saying what they think you want to say. And you could say, what I really want them to do is to give original responses. And, and then you and the coach could figure out what would be the difference? How would we know it when we see this and we know that? And then you could, the coach can take out a seating chart and just record which kids are giving more authentic responses, or if you wanted to look at the level of the response, you and the coach would work it out. And then you, together, you figure out, well, maybe we need to have more questions related to real life, or maybe we need to look at the level of questions. Too many of the questions are closed, right or wrong questions. Um, and I, I need to ask more application questions or more open questions. And well, that's not doing it either. We really need to stir the kids up a little bit with a controversy or something to get them interested. And then we ask the question. So once you've got the goal, the goal in this case would be how many kids are giving um, original responses as opposed to teacher pleasing responses, however you would define that. Then you have to you keep messing around with strategies until you got this lively, vibrant conversation of engaged students that you were striving for. That's how the process works. So the two of you are just working it out. You're just learning and thinking together. Yeah, it's, it's quite, I've changed my scheme of learning to do more making at the end. So um, it's, it's the closer we get to the making, the more engaging they are right. getting there, but they are slowly, slowly coming right. around to still loving the subject. Let's see, let's see, um, if, I, if I came to your class and I said, I noticed your kids aren't responding to your questions. This is what you should do. It wouldn't be nearly as powerful as if I came to your class and I said to you, Tell me about your students, what they're doing, what they're not doing, and what you'd like them to do. And then you start to, we, we establish the, the strategy. And then I say, what are you thinking you might do? And you might say, well, I have no idea. If I knew what to do, I'd be doing it. And I say, well, if it's okay with you, I'll share a bunch of things. You tell me which one gives you the most confidence. Then you pick the one, you try it out, and um, it's probably not going to work very well. Then we have to make some adjustments. So it may be it didn't work well because it's your first time. And you might say, I'm going to get it. I just, I, I just need to make some adjustments. Or maybe, maybe the way you're measuring the goal doesn't work very well or whatever. You make adaptations and adjustments until the goal gets hit. That's how, that's how it works. And in terms of like if you're taking it up a level and it was for like teachers, what do you think the best way of gathering data on other kind of teachers within your school, like kind of your... Uh, if you're like a middle leader on your on people in your department or if you're senior leaders just the teachers across the school because obviously here in England we've had a lot of debate about Ofsted and there's a lot of uh, obviously they come in and do inspections and they're quite hardcore um but I I think that it needs to be more of a kind of open process like my previous trust that I worked for people senior leaders would just walk in and out of the classroom every day I did I never had a day where I didn't have somebody pop into my lesson and they would just wander out I never really got feedback they were like if if we're worried about something then we'll have a conversation but it was just it felt very normal and I was happy to have teachers in my classroom and watch me I would go and watch other people like it was quite a nice kind of community feel but I feel like since COVID obviously things have changed a bit but I feel like it's quite often that idea of tracking teachers and seeing the data of teachers are seen as quite a negative thing. But actually, I think it's something that we need to do, but it's how do we get kind of teachers on side and how do we do it well that it's, it's kind of justified? Yeah, well, I, I think it's, you should gather data that helps reveal. First off, there's evaluation and there's coaching, and they're not the same thing. When yeah. you're evaluating someone, you're comparing them to a standard. You say, how do you stack up against the standard? The standard could be an evaluation tool. 
It could be any number of different things, but it's not coaching. Coaching is we're together, we identify, and you're the one who makes the decisions of what happens in your cloud. You identify the area you want to work on. And then I help you hit that goal. And that goal has to be a powerful goal. One that's going to have an unmistakably positive difference in kids' lives. Now, I'm not going to sit down with you and have a long coaching conversation if we're working on something that's trivial. We're going to work on something that will really make a difference. But, but um, I have to let go of the notion that they have to choose my goal. What matters is not that it's mine or theirs. What matters is that they've got a goal they're emotionally compelled to hit that will really make a difference for kids. Once we've got that goal, then we say, well, okay, well, how are we going to measure that? And there are lots of different ways of measuring it, but it's, it's not some checklist that I come in and watch them and make sure they're doing what I think they should do. It's, it's, it's professional discourse. It's a professional who thinks about what they do and says, like you, I really want a different kind of response from my kids to questions or a different level of engagement. And I'm wondering how I could get that. And then, and then the coach sees your strengths. You can tell they're on your side. They believe in you and they share ideas, but they don't share ideas trying to talk you into it. They say, what about this? What about this? What about this? And there's this back and forth until the goal gets hit, as opposed to I'm here to watch you and tell you what you did right and what you did wrong. Besides which, how ridiculous to think that one person come into the classroom for 45 minutes and know more about it than the teacher who's been there all year. It's kind of silly. I, I agree. I, th I think that's the thing. I think the profession, certainly in the UK, needs to change more that it, it's coaching and going and observing and coaching those lessons as opposed to it being something that you're being judged on. I think it needs to be, we may, need to, as teachers, have more open conversations. And I think that would actually help with teacher retention. I know in your I can't remember which section it's in your earlier section, but I think it was the leader and coach about um, kind of the the mental well-being as well. Like you, you mm -hmm. need to have a positive mental check and look after yourself and it shouldn't be a stressful job because we love it and we enjoy it, but it's, it should be this kind of nice, enjoyable atmosphere and, and process that we go through being teachers. Right, right. I, th I think it's... Uh you know, the best people are the ones who are most concerned about getting better all the time. So continuous improvement isn't limited to new teachers. And in fact, I would say if I was a coach in a school, the first people I would work with would be the informal leaders in the school. So people will say, I see you're working with that person. Why aren't you working with me? I want to start with the stars, so to speak. Yeah. And then people will go, oh, well, this is really a great thing. I want to be a... And coaching should be a great thing. It should help you feel more efficacious. You should be more successful. As a result of coaching, you, your kids should be doing able to do more important things they weren't able to do before. And in fact, if coaching doesn't bring about meaningful change, it's a waste of time. It should be focused on really developing student success. And, and by helping develop student success, building teacher efficacy. And you're... Um, chapter six is on in, uh, your playbook, which I just love the concept of. But actually, the more I read of it, I was like, oh, yeah, just write down every strategy and then you'll never forget anything. But then actually, when I read more of it, I was like, no, no more than 15 to 20 strategies. And I'm like, that's actually more me. Because when I I've, when I go on courses and, and stuff and I see people talking about things, I'm like, oh, I completely forgot about that. I never do that anymore. And it's actually because I've honed it down to I have these 15 and 20 strategies that I'm really good at that I kind of rotate around and actually there's nothing wrong with that and actually you're better off having those and doing those well 
than trying to add in lots of things that you're not practicing regularly. So therefore you're not as good as delivering. Yeah. It's not a, um, it's not like a magic number, but we would say you need to know, uh, your materials really, really well and better to know a small number really well than a large number really superficially. And, uh, and because Others won't be able to do something you can't describe, and if you don't have that depth of knowledge, you won't be able to describe it. So, so we're we were we're limiting it to a small number only because we would say you, you need to know it really really well. Better to get get depth of understanding. But the um, the thing is, the strategies that are in the playbook, it's not like we've identified these are the best things you have to do. The strategies help teachers hit their goals. So over time you develop more and more practices that you can see really work and other ones go off your list because nobody uses them or because something something's identified that's more effective or somebody goes to a conference and sees something and they want to try it so the the playbook is uh it's a in creating the playbook you should have real depth of understanding that's the first thing to create it you need to understand it well and then it's filled with communication tools checklists and what we call one pagers to describe the strategies, but then at the same time, it's a living document. So it's always being revised. You know, you work with a teacher and you realize I could describe this more clearly on a checklist this way. And then when we sit down with a teacher with a checklist, we don't say this is the way it has to be. We say, let's go through this thing and discuss it together. And in those discussions, often teachers have great suggestions for improvement. And then we, over time, over time, this, this playbook becomes the place we keep track of what do we know about uh, effective instruction. And again, the key thing though, is that they're helping people hit their goals. They're not, they're not, um, they're not uh, uh, the best practices. They're the best practices for helping teachers hit their goals. If they don't help teachers hit their goals, there's no, no point in having them in the playbook. So would you say to kind of, if you were doing it on a whole school basis to have like kind of areas that you want to focus on? So for example, my school currently is is focusing on challenge, but we're all doing challenge in different ways because it depends on how our subject works. But I've got my playbook of how I do challenge, but it's very different to science. And, and it's kind of, you can kind of still link it, but it, it has that autonomy of kind of what it means to you to do those things. Oh, I'm not really sure. I, I really don't know about whole school versus coaching. Um, okay. <laughs> because I think a lot, of, a lot of schools are kind of trying to bring in kind of coaching from a whole school yeah. um, perspective like, on, on kind I of mean, CPD and how you can kind of bring it and and kind of I think it's it's nice as well when it's backed up with like a like a learning group where teachers go yeah. and try things and then have those discussions and kind of talk about it and have that kind of safe place to make mistakes but then be able to kind of refine their strategies um is quite nice well there are different things you know the whole school exploration and implementation but that puts the focus on the strategies whereas instructional coaching as we define it puts the focus on what matters to kids. Yeah. So we, so we start with kids. And um, I've just seen too often whole school stuff is just kind of nominal. You know, it's a yeah. name only. We're not really doing it. We, we talk about it. And, but in terms of real change, there's not much change happening. There's not much that's happening. And, and often it feels um, 
divorce from reality to some extent. Now, having said that, I, I think it could work. It's just, and, and I suppose coaching could, could help with it, but, um, but I would say the goal is critical. If you don't have a goal, the person wants to hit. People yeah. will just dip their toes in it. They just do the bare minimum. So whatever you're doing, so long as the teachers can see the power of it and they're excited about it, and it's guided by a change in students rather than a focus on a strategy, then I think then I think it could work. Because that's generally like kind of with schools here with their performance management, you kind of have a whole school strategy. Like for example, ours is is challenging and and how are we getting those students how are we challenging our students and, and not letting them just sit comfortably that they are kind of being pushed and trying and and um how we do that but then you also have your personalized one that you what's your target what do you want to do um for the kids right. that are going to kind of benefit them what's personal to kind of um specific so quite a lot often like the whole school one's more kind of our lower school and then when we get to our our, our exam students that's where you can be kind of more personal I think in terms of what you want to get out of them but I just find it is I find I find there's just so many there's so many different ways of applying it because there's your relationship with the students that you can coach the students and how you build that relationship with them and how you can question them and get the best out of them and how you can focus your learning and teaching styles to them but then you've also got the trainee teachers how you can get them to be reflective and think about their pedagogy and, and the s- skills that they can use. But then there's also kind of the, the head of department or senior leaders and how you can coach other teachers to improve and, and in, re-engage, I guess, with learning and, and how they get the best out of their team and the best out of their subjects. So there's, it's quite, there's different layers and it depends, I guess, which one you're applying it to, um, which I suppose leads to the, I was like, um, the kind of your uh, where you work last bit, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of working out what your there's lots of different ways you can be a coach, but it's making sure you do it the best way for each one. Yeah, I mean, we believe in um, what we call freedom within form, and so we have a structure to our coaching cycle. We call the impact cycle, and uh, there's steps we move through, and stages. Three stages: identify, learn, and improve. Um, and so that's pretty consistent, uh, and it's the product of 20 years of making mistakes. You know, over time, we've tried this and tried that, and some things have worked, and some things haven't worked. So we've made more and more adjustments. But um, but it's different every time. And the goal is going to be different. The teacher is going to be different. And the whole process is going to be a little bit different. So when we get into the impact cycle, it's pretty consistently the same structure. <laughs> it's like it is really like the melody of a song. It could be played by Ornette Coleman or it could be played by the Berlin Philharmonic. You know, the song could be played differently, but the song still is there. I should probably it's... use some British examples. So it could, it could be <laughs> no, it's fine. It could be played by Radiohead or the London Symphony. Brilliant. Perfect. <laughs> um, and is there, I suppose, like I've read it all the way through, but is it something that you can dip in and out of? Or you would, if you, would you say that there's a section that's the most important? Or would you say equally it's all as important as one another? Okay. 
I would say if you're just going to read one chapter and focus on one part, it would be chapter four, which is the impact cycle. Yeah. To me, understanding the coaching process is um, it's like getting in the pool if you're a swimmer. You know, you can't learn until you're doing it. And so that's kind of what you do. You know, I'd say that's key. And one idea I suggest to people is, if, is, is just to skim the book initially to see what they want to do with it. I would say for instructional coaching, it's built around seven factors. All seven factors are essential. You know, if you don't know what your teaching practices are, you don't know how to gather data, you're not a good communicator or listener. You know, any of those things, if they're not, if they're not there, it's going to be problematic. So I think they're all important, but you could, you, you could knock out the book in 30 minutes if all you did was read the maps at the beginning, <laughs> skim yeah. it, read the summary at the end. And, uh, and you could see, I kind of got what that chapter is about and work your way through and then come back and go into it in more detail. But it's not, it's not that long. It's only about, I think, 60,000 words. So it's a little shorter than some books. No, I found it, I found it very easy um, to read and, it's it was it was nice it wasn't it was kind of you had the scenarios and then the information and then the breakdown and it was it flowed really nicely and I was it's the perfect time of year really over here in the UK we're about we're six weeks away the most of mm-hmm. us all, all those people in private schools get to break up early but uh, we're almost on the summer holiday so I definitely recommend um, getting this from your John Katz and having a read of it over the summer holidays to kind of go in with a fresh mind to September um I know I've made little notes for it and there's definitely bits that once once my year 11s officially disappear in two weeks time once all the exams are done so then I'm like going to go through and do some of the more of the reflective tasks as I just think that actually sometimes we read and actually we don't reflect and and kind of we're not very good learners ourselves teachers and we we um shouldn't forget to do those bits as well hmm well and we uh, we, we ha- we're almost we're almost at the end so thank you so much for joining me we did get through all seven chapters what what's next for you then well the uh, i'm actually going to be in um the uk july 4th i think at leeds beckett university we're doing a, oh. a, a thing on instructional coaching there for a day and then i think i'm presenting at the festival of education so i'll be in england um for a little bit in July, and uh, I'm working on this book, Data Rules, which is the next writing project. So um, I'm looking forward to that. And then our big conference is the Teaching, Learning, Coaching Conference. Uh, it's coming up in October, and Oliver Caviglioli and Tom Sherrington are going to be there. We're excited about them. And Rachel Lofthouse is going to present virtually. So if you can't come to... Uh, and the United States for the conference, it's, it's, it's a virtual conference too. So lots of stuff. There's always things going on. We're always trying to keep moving forward, spreading the word. I think that's, that's, the, that's the one great thing that's come out of COVID, I feel, is the fact that all this virtual learning that we can actually get into each other and, and see kind of people live and actually have those interactions, which is really nice. Can I, can I ask, because you've written quite a lot of books, how long do they take to, to write? Oh, about three times as long as I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the trouble is you, you have a life and uh, you, you have other things to do. Like if I was, I don't know, an author who all they did was write, it would be a lot easier, but, and probably better books, but, you know, 
tomorrow I'm flying to Kentucky and I'm going to present there the next day. And then, um, you know, there's a lot happening in the next few weeks. And then I have, we're having this conversation, but I have other meetings all day. And, um, and so the actual writing takes quite a while. And I, what I would say about the writing is, um, the first thing you write is always trash. I mean, you look at it and you're like, <laughs> I don't know what I'm thinking. Why, who, what do I think I'm going to, so you have to have faith that, um, it's going to be good. And you just read it until it's a book you like reading, you know, and, and you just edit because writing is more about editing than the actual writing. And yeah, and I'd say you have to stick with it. If you have to write at six in the morning before you go to school or, you know, you have to find a time and do it because the world will find all kinds of reasons to um, keep you from doing your work. Um, there's a wonderful book called uh, The War of Art. And uh, the author has written quite a few books about creativity. And, you know, he says there's, there's, it's all almost like there's a resistance that keeps you from doing the work. So you have to stick with it. If it's, if it looks like garbage, it doesn't matter. You can't clean up nothing, but you can clean up the garbage. You can make it better and just keep moving, keep moving forward little bits by little bits by little bits. And eventually there's a book. Well, this one is certainly isn't garbage. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And and thank you so much for coming on and answering my questions. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. I'm grateful uh, that you let me squeeze in here. And I'm so glad that I actually got on. I was a little getting, I was getting pretty stressed out. So it was great to be here. And it's, we, thank you we so got much there for in the, the end. Thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And if you missed any of tonight's show, then you can listen back on the podcast soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.